1: Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, Truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is
0: for you with every sunrise.
2: Saul, you've slain your thousand, but David has slain his ten thousand. And it says in the next verse, verse 8 Saul was very angry. Uh, this refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. If you have a King James Bible, it says Saul eyed David. And it is the only time that that particular Hebrew word is used in all of the Bible. It's the Hebrew word avan, and it means to watch with evil intent. This is Cornerstone
1: Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the book of Genesis. As Pastor Gary continues his teaching series through the book of Genesis, he'll be explaining how envy and jealousy can only lead to destruction if it's not repented of immediately. Some of the most evil things people do to each other always seems to stem from envy. Whenever you hear about a murder, the motive is always centered around the killer being jealous, which in turn led to covetousness and eventually murder. King Saul didn't start out wanting to kill David for no reason. Saul was jealous of David, and this led to a deep hatred towards him. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today... I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary for part two of today's message entitled, Envy Kills. Is enough enough. You jump in find the Run
2: Envy actually has a personally destructive effect if we harbor it in our lives. It rots the bones. Number three, envy is disrespectful. It's disrespectful of others when we envy them because it comes out with malice often. And Let me illustrate this with you from the Bible. Go to Numbers chapter 12. This is also a good story that you should turn to and look at with me. It's in Numbers chapter 12 and Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers right there near the beginning of your Bibles. And as you're finding Numbers 12, let me just set the stage for you. Uh, This is a story about Miriam and Aaron, the sister and brother of Moses. And they are taking issue with Moses' leadership and Moses' relationship that he has with God. They're envious of him. And so they're going to confront him. And here in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses. Now, by the way, the verb there to talk against is in the feminine Hebrew, which indicates to us that really Miriam, the sister, is the instigator because we're going to see in the end, she's the one who really gets punished, not really so much Aaron. But, so, but she brings Aaron, her brother, into this. It says, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. And then verse 3. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now I always chuckle when I read this because the Bible indicates to us that Moses was the one inspired inspired by the Spirit to write the first five books of the Bible. So the most humble guy on the planet had to write this here in verse (laughs) 3. But I can imagine he's dialoguing with God like, Lord, do I really have to write this? I mean, you know, if I write it, I'm not, write it, Moses. Do I have to write it, Mo?" And... (laughs) He probably said, could I put it just at least in parentheses? All right, put it at least in parentheses. So it's a parenthetical verse there in verse 3. But notice here, what's the issue? They make it sound like it's because they don't like the woman that Moses has married. They say, you've married a Cushite woman. Now, Cushite is an Ethiopian. You know what's happening here? It's prejudiced because Moses has married a black woman. It shows the root of prejudice right here. God has no problem with skin color. Okay, make it clear. But Miriam and Aaron make it sound like that it's an issue. The fact of the matter is it's a smokescreen. It's a smokescreen for what's going on in their own wicked hearts. The, the real issue at hand is they envy Moses' leadership and Moses' relationship with God. They're just using the Cushite wife thing as a smokescreen. That's not the real issue. And what they're going around saying is, hey, is Moses the only guy who can hear from God? We kind of can hear from God too, you know? All of us can hear from God. Who do you think you are, Moses? You think you're the only one who can hear from God. And it says, and the Lord heard this. And so look what happens. Verse 4, at once the Lord said to Moses, Arian, and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting all three of you. You know, I don't have to read further to know this is not a good thing. When God calls you to the principal's office, it's not going to be a good thing. And so the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance of the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When both of them stepped forward, he said, this is God speaking, "'Listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house.' With him I speak face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Verse 9, the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. And you might think, they're off scot-free. No, they're not. Not exactly. Verse 10, when the cloud lifted from above the tent, there stood Miriam, leprous, like snow. Aaron turned toward her and "...and saw that she had leprosy. And he said to Moses, "'Please, my Lord, do not hold against us this sin.'" He identifies it as sin. "'We have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with with its flesh half eaten away.'" All right, that's a little too much information, but we get the idea, Aaron. Verse 13, "'So Moses cried out to the Lord, "'O God, please heal her.'" The Lord replied to Moses, "'If her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days?' Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on till she was brought back. After that the people left Hazaroth and encamped in the desert of Paran. This this to me, uh, you know, I, I think about the conversation that must have happened among the Israelites. They had no idea, perhaps all of them, what was going on. And they were probably sitting around talking, hey, how come we're not moving on? How come we're not, you know, picking up our tents here and moving? You know, what's the deal? Oh, well, you didn't hear? No, I didn't hear. What happened? Well, Miriam, the sister of Moses, she got leprosy from God. Really? Yeah, because she was kind of disrespecting Moses and God, and she had envy in her heart, and so God gave her leprosy. Ha <laughs> ha Now, you know what? I've read ahead. Miriam and Aaron never disrespect Moses again. You get a little leprosy. You have your flesh falling off your face. You're probably not going to repeat that sin. Now, she's healed, and in seven days, she's brought back in. So it's not a, you know, a terminal illness here. But nevertheless, God gets the message across. You're disrespecting him. And why were they disrespecting him? Because envy was in their heart. They envied his leadership. They envied his relationship that he had with God. And they wanted it. And they didn't want him to have it. So it fed this sense where they end up coming across being very disrespectful towards Moses. But it's not only disrespect. Number four... Envy fuels a sense of entitlement. It fuels a sense of entitlement. Let me illustrate this with another Bible story. If you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. Keep going from Numbers to the right. A few more books, not too many. You'll come to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Now while you're looking for 1 Samuel 18, let me just kind of set the stage for this story. Saul is king of Israel. He's the first king of Israel. David is somewhat, if you will, his younger protege. Uh, God has already anointed David. David will succeed King Saul. It's just a matter of time. Uh, David uh, has more of a heart after God. Saul has failed and shown himself incapable of really leading the nation. So God is about to replace him with David as king. But in the meantime, David is still kind of the shepherd boy. He's coming into his own. He's, He's growing in this anointing that literally Samuel has anointed him to be the next king of Israel. Uh, He has a heart for God. He's a better warrior than Saul is. And in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, it's that infamous story of David slaying Goliath, this nine-and-a-half-foot-tall giant, that David, being this young guy, is the only brave one among all of Israel's army to slay this Philistine. And as a result of this valiant uh, display of his courage by killing Goliath, all of Israel is now rallying behind David. And he's not king yet. Saul is still king. And Saul's going to get a little envious of what he's hearing among the people towards David. And as David is returning from the battlefield after killing Goliath and Saul with him, they're coming back into Jerusalem and look at what happens here in 1 Samuel 18. In verse 6, it says, When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang. Saul has slain his thousands, and David is tens of thousands. Now, you know, you know it's, look, this is... To me, in my mind, this is the first cheerleading cheer. That's what I'm thinking. I'm seeing seeing women come out from various towns with pom-poms, and I'm hearing the whole chant, you know? Ready, set, okay, that kind of deal, you know? Saul is saying his thousands, and David, his ten thousands. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, okay, you got the idea? And I'm seeing this parade. That's okay, I I don't want to do it that well. Um, It is a sport, though. But anyhow... Hey, I got an extra hour of sleep. I'm a little frisky. But anyhow, um, you know, here, here's Saul. He's, he's, hearing, he's hearing all of this. Hey, Saul, you've slain your thousand. But David has slain his ten thousands. And it says in the next verse, verse 8, Saul was very angry. Uh, This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. If you have a King James Bible, it says, Saul eyed David. And it is the only time that that particular Hebrew word is used in all of the Bible. It's the Hebrew word, avan, and it means to watch with evil intent. In fact, when you look at the next verse, the next day Saul is hurling a spear trying to kill David. Why? Because it's what happens with envy. But notice if you will what's happening here with Saul in his heart. He's like, "Wait a minute. I'm king. I deserve the accolades. I deserve the praise of these of these women through these towns." I'm the king, okay? David is just this little punk kid who wants to take over my throne. I'm the one entitled to the praise. That's what's happening here. Why? Because the issue here is the eye that he has on David, it's really envy. Because, again, the Hebrew word avon, it's to watch with malicious intent. It's envy. He doesn't want David to get the praise. Not only does Saul want the praise, he doesn't want David to get it. He doesn't want David to get his throne either. He wants it all. He's full of envy, and envy fuels a sense of entitlement. I, I hear people all the time talk about, and I, I don't know if it's unique to the American culture. I suspect it is in some ways. I think it probably transcends cultures, but I think there's something about us enjoying the tremendous luxuries that we have in the freedom of our country that it almost seems to lend itself to people walking around talking about how they deserve this and that, how I have my rights, I'm entitled to this and that. And, and I've, I've actually, I cringe when I hear sometimes people will say, you, you've heard people say, I deserve what's coming to me. Because I'm thinking, that's kind of like hell, you know? You don't really want, you, none of us really wants what we deserve. Let me suggest something to you, and, and if you grasp this, this will be personally liberating, and it will be in keeping with biblical principle. we got to get rid of this vocabulary in our culture, especially among the saints. We need to get rid of this vocabulary, I deserve, I'm entitled to. If, if you can learn to say and to believe, to, to embrace that I deserve nothing and no one owes me anything, it'll be tremendously liberating to you. This, this notion, this prideful thing about I deserve, I'm entitled, since when? And think about what kind of reflection this is on God because he has bankrupted heaven. He has spilled the son of his blood, Jesus, to hang on a cross for our sins. Who among us should have the audacity to ever think that we are entitled to more? God has given us of his son. Why do we walk around thinking, but I deserve this and I want that? If we seriously will embrace the idea, I deserve nothing and no one owes me anything, guess what? Next time somebody gives you something, you will humbly receive it with grace and gratitude. But if you don't embrace this mentality and this principle of scripture, the next time someone gives you something, you'll look at it and you'll think, is that all? I kind of was thinking it would be a little bit more. You know, what about me? Because envy is the seedbed of selfishness, and it all begins to focus on self and the resentment towards others, what they have and who they are and what I didn't get. And the whole entitlement thing is fueled by envy. We have to be very careful of it. That's what happened with Saul. Destroyed him, among other things, but it did. Let's go to the last point, number five. Envy can actually lead to murder. It really is what happened in this story here in Genesis 4. It was envy in Cain's heart that led him to premeditated malicious murder of his brother Abel. Cain envied Abel's righteousness. He envied Abel's offering. He envied Abel's relationship with God. And so after God had rejected Cain's offering and accepted Abel's, Cain turns to Abel and says, hey, bro, how about we go take a walk in the field? And in Genesis 4, 8, it says, and while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. It was envy that fueled the rage that exploded in murder. That's what happened. And the New Testament actually gives us insight into how Cain killed his brother. Mark the verse down. It's 1 John 3, 12. And I'll just quote it. 1 John 3, 12. This is what it says. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. That word murdered in 1 John 3, 12 is the Greek word that is the same word used to describe the slaughtering of an animal for sacrifice. It literally means to cut the throat it's as if Cain gets Abel out in the field and says as this envy boils over okay God loves your sacrifice your blood offering I'll make you the blood offering and he slits his neck and envy in its ultimate extreme can ultimately lead to murder and this is not just some isolated biblical story it happens all the time today You remember the story when Steve McNair was brutally murdered, former quarterback for the Titans? He was having an affair with a woman his wife knew nothing about. He's dead in an apartment that he rented to have rendezvous with this woman. The woman that he was having an affair with thought that McNair was going to go back to his wife, shot him four times while he took a nap. Then she turned the gun and killed herself. McNair's wife found out that he was dead, after the police investigated, didn't even know that he was having an affair. The woman who kills McNair, why is she doing this? The idea is, if I can't have you, no one will. It leads to murder. It happens even in our own backyard. In fact, as I was preparing for this study, front page Loudon Times Mirror, Sterling woman charged with hiring a hitman. I'll withhold her name, but I'll just let you know she's from Sterling, 49 years of age. She had a boyfriend who left her for another woman. The article reads in part A Loudoun County woman was arrested October the 20th after allegedly hiring someone to kill her boyfriend and his mistress. She hires a hitman who turns out to be an informant for the FBI. That's the way it goes. She told the informant that she wanted the mistress's life to be, and this is, quote, from... He wore a wire, so this is recorded and part of the transcripts. She wanted the mistress's life to be, quote, a living hell and nothing to work for her. In other words, like, you know, maim her to the point where she's disabled. And then she says, I want her gone. The informant asked what gone meant, and she responded, quote, gone is killed, dead, gone. I want nothing left. No remains, nothing. And then she went on to tell the informant she also wanted her boyfriend dead and she wanted her boyfriend dead for the killing of the mistress to appear as though the boyfriend killed her, according to the documents. So in other words, like a homicide-suicide thing, make it look like he kills her or she kills him first and then he kills himself. I mean, the whole thing is so twisted. But look, this is the same issue. This is the same issue. It is envy that is fueling this sense of, Well, I don't want what they. I I want what they have, and I don't want them to have it. So if I can't have this boyfriend, I don't want her to have it. Now, just kill them both. Envy says somebody else has the boyfriend. Somebody else has the job that I got passed over. Envy says somebody else is better looking. Somebody else is more athletic. Somebody else is smarter. Somebody else drives a better car. Somebody else lives in a nicer house. It's this kind of thing that just fuels. That sin nature, somebody else has a better marriage. It's this constant comparison. It's not always upward either in terms of like, you know, societal echelons in life. It, it's, it's the guy in the back of the limousine envying his chauffeur because the chauffeur has a better marriage and the chauffeur has more peace in his life. And the chauffeur goes to his kids' football games and soccer games while he's sitting in the back seat bemoaning the fact that even though he's wealthier, his life is a shambles. It can happen across all kinds of cultural differences and, and, you know, financial barriers. I mean, this is the issue of of the heart. And some of you might be saying, okay, well, I get the idea envy is a sin. It can be, you know, personally destructive and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, how often does it really lead to murder? Well, thankfully, not as often. But nevertheless, we need to understand this is a sin issue and we need to ask ourselves, what can we do to combat envy in our own lives? What is the remedy for envy in our own lives? Two quick points, and then we'll close and pray. And these are hard points, but these are essential to understand. And the first one is, we have to rejoice with those who rejoice. We have to rejoice with the successes of others. We have to celebrate their achievements. You say, well, wait a minute, I don't even like the person. Okay, maybe you don't, but but you better learn to celebrate their success, or you're going to get eaten alive with envy admiration and appreciation, certainly, envy, no. We can admire people, we can appreciate people, we can respect people, we should, but to envy them, no. And to make sure that envy doesn't get a hold of our hearts, we better learn to rejoice with those who are successful and we have to be able to celebrate with their achievements. Romans 12, verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice. So when they're having a great day, you rejoice with them. When they're not having a good day, you mourn with them. That's what Christians should be about. Secondly, we have to learn to be content in whatever our circumstance. If we get into this comparative game, it's going to destroy us because ultimately envy will rise up and cause all kinds of evil practice. Philippians 4, 11 to 13, Paul said, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then he adds, I can do everything through him who gives me the strength. You hear what he's saying there? He's saying sometimes there's going to be days of, of plenty. Sometimes there's going to be days when things are pretty needy in my life. He says, but I'm going to still rejoice in the Lord. He says, because I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. In other words, my identity and my security is in the Lord. it's, It's not an envying who other people are or what other people have. It is in the Lord. And I'm going to be content in Jesus no matter where he has me in life because it's better to be in the center of God's will with a peaceful heart than to be outside of the will of God envying and longing and burdened and discontent. That is so destructive. And in its ultimate extreme, it actually leads to murder. That's what happened with Cain
1: and able. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to Cornerstone Connection, the teaching ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. To learn more about this radio ministry, please visit our website at cornerstoneconnection.cc where you can download today's teaching or subscribe to our podcast. At cornerstoneconnection.cc, you'll also find information about all of our ministries. Links to our Facebook page. Twitter feed, and more. We can be reached via email at info at cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's info at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Or you can give us a call at 703-771-1500. That's 703-771-1500. When you contact us, please let us know how today's broadcast has blessed you feedback helps us know the Lord's direction for this ministry. Once again, you've been listening to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. On the next edition of Cornerstone Connection, Pastor Gary will continue taking us through the book of Genesis.